Hi everyone, and welcome to this month's Mercia Auditing and Accounting Podcast with me, Lee Eagling. Today, I want to take a look at some of the recent sanctions that have been issued by the FRC in the audit space and try and make sure that for firms of all shapes and sizes, we're taking the relevant learnings from those findings. I think there's a a temptation from what I see that that firms maybe think, okay, that only applies to the big four or or the tier one firms. And I just want to draw on, on some of the observations and findings that the FRC have made and try and link those back to the findings that, that we commonly find on our FAR reviews. And I think just make you all aware that if there's something on the FRC's radar, that will naturally trickle down onto, say, the, the QAD or the ACCA's radar. And I think then those, those learnings need to be applied across all levels of the audit profession. First off then, I'm going to pick out a number of areas from the Carillion um, inspection that the FRC concluded and issued their report on, um, as I recall this day, a few weeks ago. Whilst I'm not going to talk through every single point in, in that report, there are, again, a, a couple of wider areas that I want to draw on that, that overlap quite heavily with, with themes that we see on our file review. So the, the first one I want to dive into is the importance of, of independence. Now, again, without diving into the nitty-gritty of, of sort of what the specific issue was on Carillion, I think the underlying theme was that audit team were certainly not perceived to be independent of the client and therefore could not demonstrate how they were making objective conclusions, how they were demonstrating professional scepticism in a number of areas. In particular, it was a, another KPMG team that had performed work in, a, in an area that had been challenged um, and could the audit team then robustly scrutinise the work in that area. I think if I if I link that back to what I see generally on files that I review, I think most files are pretty good at identifying what I'd say the, the core threats to independence are, maybe thinking about sort of the, the basic self-review threat, management threat that arises from, from basic and, and sort of core non-audit services. I think what I'm still not seeing coming through is that the application of, of the third party test. What does a lay person on the street think about you as the audit firm and your relationship with your audit clients? That was something that got emphasized more so in the 2019 revision to the ethical standard. And I think if we look at the, the fairly recent update to the ethical standard that's been published and is currently open for consultation, that third party test gets more emphasis in there as well. So I think just really important that we're not just thinking about, are we comfortable with an independence issue? Is the client comfortable with an independence issue? Really important that we are taking the perspective from that layperson in the street. How did they perceive that relationship? And again, in, in, in the case of the Carillion audit, I think a, a third party would scrutinise and say, actually, you can't do independent audit work, certainly in that particular area, given the the linkage of, of another piece of, of KPMG performing that work, and that's going to impair um, your independence, as, as was seen to be the case here. Next off, if I move on and think about going concern, and again, not going to pick out the, the specific findings on, on Carillion here, clearly we were all aware of, of how that ultimately ended, I think if I generally draw a picture from what I've seen since ISA 570 was revised, and I think probably important to note that it was largely the the, the, the pre-investigation findings from Carillion that maybe acted as the catalyst for the FRC enhancing our requirements for ISA 570. I, I think I've seen a lot of firms improve their work in that area. 
I, I think it is clear to see there has been a general uplift in, in the quality of work around going concern. That said, across the board, I think a lot of files that I see don't fully get under the skin of what the detailed requirements are, and I think therefore do struggle to demonstrate that they have truly understood how management have made their going concern assessment, and then ultimately how the audit firm has audited that assessment. I think in terms of the the separation of the client making the assessment for the auditor to appraise, that's generally being done reasonably well now. I, I think I've seen most firms move away from the, this is our conclusion of a going concern and a pure sign off on that basis. I am seeing a, an improvement of this is what the client thinks and our appraisal of that. I think it's expanding that that level of scrutiny, that scepticism around the client's assessment and making sure we tease that out in more detail. So in particular, if your clients have prepared a forecast, have you critically assessed the, the assumptions that underpin that forecast? Has the client performed any sensitivity analysis over that? If not, is that something as an audit firm you've considered? What's the level of headroom in that forecast? How, how much wiggle room is there? And if that's relatively small, we might need to be a bit more critical and a bit more challenging to think about, well, actually, there, there's, there isn't that much scope for flex here. And therefore, if something goes wrong, then maybe that's a greater concern that does potentially need to come across as a material uncertainty that the client then clearly discloses. And then we as the auditor will, will reflect and cross-reference that in our audit report. Um, so I think a, a few learnings there just to build on from a going concern perspective. Next off, I'm going to think about supervision and, and review. I think the Carillion team were, were criticised in, in some instances that work was being documented and reviewed in some occasions, maybe up to six months after the audit report day. Now, that's quite extreme, and I think a very extreme example compared to, to a lot of cases I've, I've reviewed recently. Maybe if I link back um, to the BHS Tabata um, findings from as they got published a few years ago, Think about the findings from, from that investigation. Similarly there, RI involvement and supervision and quality of review was a key finding um, from that investigation. And so I think an ever-consistent theme of if the FRC are being critical of, as an RI, have you evidenced your involvement? Can we see that they have led the audit engagement, reviewed the engagement team's work, such that they're then comfortable to give an audit report? clearly one of their key observations as they're reviewing a file, certainly something we would expect the other monitoring bodies to be picking up on, and it's then certainly something that we focus on in our reviews. I think important to stress that we're relatively bullish with after-date sign-off of an audit file. Yes, if the wider file tells the story with maybe an RI footprint through field work and evidence of review elsewhere, will be a bit more flexible in terms of did they sign off key completion schedules prior to the audit report date. But if the file has relatively little evidence of the RI's involvement and certainly where they are involved, that sign-off is after date. Even if that's within the 60 days permitted by ISA 230, we will still take a relatively critical um, re uh, conclusion on in that area. And I think something to just be mindful of, like I said, clearly the Carillion case was, was quite extreme within, like I said, some instances, six months. So that's well outside of, of the ISO 230 requirements. But nonetheless, I think really important that we're very clear that even that 60-day window, 
is there for file administration, allows us to maybe attach final signed documents, maybe tidy up documentation, but we, we can't be adding new audit evidence to the file after we've signed our audit report. So I think just something to make sure from a housekeeping perspective, we're comfortable that the file reflects our conclusions and that we're ultimately comfortable to sign our audit report based upon the file as it's structured and, and is in place at the point in time we sign the audit report. And if we're not happy with that, we should defer until we've got the file in a position that we are ultimately comfortable to sign. Next off, I'm going to think about contract accounting. And if I'm being brutally honest, this is an area that I rarely see performed well on audit files. I review, dare I say, I, I often cringe and my heart sinks a little bit. I maybe jump to a maybe a preemptory conclusion that I'm probably going to be critical of an audit team's work in that area, given it's pervasively something that I see done generally badly. If I pick out, again, a couple of the areas that the, the Carillion audit team were, were singled out for that ring true with, with findings that I often see on audit files where, where teams I review their work for have tested contract accounting, a couple of areas in that that I think we need to be honing in on. Firstly, loss-making contracts. Have we applied scepticism to the management assessment of that area? Are we comfortable that they've maybe done an appropriate look-back test thinking about, well, what are their contract outcomes? Can we see that if they're forecasting a profit, they consistently deliver that profit? Take the benefit of, of a sort of hindsight period in that post-year end period. What was the outcome of contracts that were in flight over the year end period? Have they actually generated a profit or can we retrospectively see that they were loss making? And that sends strong audit evidence to think about actually, do we need some loss provisions in there or not? Building around that, think about recoverability of a contract asset. Have you been able to see post-year end recovery of amounts that were recognized as an asset at the year end date? but then maybe weren't billed until the post-year end period? Can we see a healthy flow of, of subsequent period and cash collection? Can we see there is still uh, ongoing work on that contract? Is, is the customer still in a healthy position? Or if the customer has fallen into to financial difficulty, that may well call into question the recoverability of a, of a contract asset that your client has with that customer. And then more generally, just think about how you have challenged your contract, your client's contract assessment of stage of completion, particularly where that's maybe derived from percentage completion based upon total costs. Various inputs there that we, we need to get comfortable with. Firstly, how good is our client at forecasting total costs to complete? And similar to what I was talking about for, for a review of loss-making contracts, can we see that once a contract is concluded, was that total forecast cost reflective in the actual cost incurred or were there some, some final adjustments that need to be made upon closeout of a contract? Is our client accurately tracking costs as they are being incurred to almost that, that cost to date? Has that accurately flowed into the contract? Are they tracking those accurately? And then from a total revenue perspective, how is your client tracking what that total expected revenue is? Are there contract variations that either should be included or either the client wants to include, but there's insufficient evidence to, to demonstrate that they should be included at that point in time? It's going to few areas there to make sure that our work around contract accounting is tightened up appropriately.
The final area of, of the Carillion audit that I wanted to dig into in a bit more detail was not necessarily the scope of work specifically on contract accounting, but the FRC highlighted that, okay, work was relatively weak around eight key contracts that, that the KPMG audit team identified, but they were then calling out, well, actually, outside of those key contracts, there was still a significant proportion of, of a contract accounting balance that ultimately wasn't tested because their, their team had, had focused the, the effort that they did put in onto certain key contracts. And I think if I think about a, a team's approach to, to testing and coverage that I see on a lot of files I review, I think really important to bear in mind that where you are hanging your hat on extent of coverage obtained, we still need to be mindful of how big is that untested residual balance and in particular if that's material and many multiples of materiality we probably ought to consider performing further work to get coverage over that residual population i think i'm all in favor for if we can build a testing approach around coverage and leave any material balance untested that that's a very strong argument on file to demonstrate we've got sufficient audit work in that area However, as I said, if, if we've got a material balance that is untested, not to say that we need to apply a strict sampling approach and, and have a, a relatively high sample size, we do still have some scope for judgment, but I do think we need to consider what the risk is of a material misstatement in that untested residual population. And I think just make sure we are expanding our procedures as necessary, maybe doing a little bit more work than, than we would otherwise consider performing. If I throw the net slightly wider then and, and have a look at a couple of other sanctions um, outcomes that have been issued earlier this year uh, beyond Carillion, two that I want to pick up on in a little bit of detail. First off, I'm going to have a look at the Babcock findings um, and the outcome of, of that audit. One particular finding there that, that resonated with me if I go into a little bit of detail on that one, just to, to set the scene, so so the PwC team for, for Babcock in this instance were, were criticised for a relatively key contract that, that, that the client had had made an accounting judgment on was um, written exclusively in French, and the audit team couldn't demonstrate on the file how they got that contract translated such that they understood the terms of that contract to then be able to critically review the, the client's application of that above, here's what the client told them that the contract meant in English. Now, I think for, for audit files I review, clearly that foreign language doesn't crop up that often, but I maybe do see instances of where the team has had to review something that is, is written in a particular technical language. So it could be very industry specific so not necessarily foreign language but just think about technical language more generally do you as an audit team truly understand that piece of audit evidence you've been given would you feel comfortable to say okay we have read and understood that particular piece of evidence that the client has provided to us such that we can form our own opinion on that and therefore determine is the client's treatment of, of that contract or, or key documentation appropriate and I think in, in a number of instances, that's an area where, where teams can enhance their application of skepticism by taking that step back and think about, okay, the client has told us what that means. We've read it. Dare I say, we're, we're not experts in that particular industry or that particular language, whatever it might be. 
and therefore actually do we need to involve an expert or a specialist to help us interpret and and conclude what that contract means and we can therefore build our audit evidence around that now in most instances that that expert opinion may help affirm that yes what the client did tell us was correct and we can therefore build a strong case for for the conclusion around that but in some instances it may well highlight that the client's interpretation may not be correct or be missing certain key points of a contract or or other audit evidence and that can then allow that that demonstration of skepticism to then challenge the client around that and then draw out more audit evidence as was needed to either support the client's conclusion or to give a con- contradictory view that we can maybe think about appraising and, and consider, does that need to be a misstatement that we consider when concluding on the audit more generally? The second case that I, I want to pick up on in a bit of detail was, was Eddie Stobart. And I think important to note that there were two sets of sanctions um, for Eddie Stobart audits, one around KPMG, which I think was their 2017 audit, and then subsequently PwC for their audit work in 2018. Now, it was interesting if you compare the, the findings side by side, the, the technical areas in terms of quality of, of audit work and, and where areas weren't sufficiently challenged for both KPMG and PwC were, were broadly consistent. But it was was interesting that PwC appeared to have been sanctioned more severely, and the notable difference there being it was PwC's first year at audit. I think then if I link that back to what I see from it from a first year audit perspective on as far as I review, a couple of wider themes to, to take away from that. One, just be mindful that the ISAs are quite prescriptive in terms of work we have to perform on a first year audit. So Yes, our opinion doesn't explicitly comment on a prior year um, audit report and, and 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 give an opinion on the prior year financial statements, but we do still need to obtain sufficient appropriate audit evidence that the prior year is free from misstatement. So how would we typically do that? Well, if it was subject to audit in the prior year, we would go and review the predecessor auditor's work. If that's not an option, um, for us, then it's saying, okay, we potentially need to go and undertake certain procedures ourselves. And that could be, okay, we might need to go back and test some balances from the prior year, or we might need to expand our audit procedures in the current year to think about, okay, how does that get us comfort over the prior year figures? I think in, in this case, if I if I touch on some of the specific findings, for me, it was clear that, that PwC didn't apply a, a fresh approach of scepticism almost with that, that opportunity they had to look at things fresh. They were maybe too in the mindset of, well, well, if KPMG signed off on it last year, it must be fine. Didn't therefore undertake the necessary consultations to, to, to demonstrate their challenge and scrutiny of contentious areas of accounting that Eddie Stobart were applying. And I think that's a, a key takeaway for me is if your clients, particularly for a first year audit, are doing anything that looks potentially contentious or judgmental, year one is, is your best opportunity to go after that as low hanging fruit. It's not to say that you can't and shouldn't challenge a client subsequently, but I think be mindful it's gonna be a much more difficult conversation in say year two or three, if you later turn around to the client and say, actually, we, we don't like the accounting treatment in the area, the client's natural response is going to be, well, you signed off on it last year, what's changed to, to, to change your view now? 
and we might have to fawn our sword a little bit and say, well, we're really sorry, we, we missed it in, in prior years. And so I think that's a, a key takeaway for me is really be mindful of the rigour that you need to apply to a first-year audit and that's it's your best opportunity to really challenge a client on anything that, that is contentious uh, and almost with that fresh approach, you've got the best opportunity to, to demonstrate scepticism in year one. I think if I if I summarise then and, and try and pull all of that together, I think if I take all the recent cases that the FRC have issued sanctions on and try and draw out a key theme, it largely all comes back to the application of scepticism. Again, there are key areas that, that it's been seen to be lacking in the three cases that I've touched on today. And then again, a few other sanctions that the, the FRC have issued that I, I've not spoke about in detail. But I think it's the, that's the key message. As, a, as an audit team, does your file really tell that story of scepticism? And again, if I think about common findings that, that I have from file reviews that I perform, all too often, I will review a file, see an area that the file doesn't tell me the story of scepticism and, and how the team has challenged the client in key areas. Yes, I can then go and have a conversation with the RI, with the manager, and through discussion, they can maybe draw out an argument of, oh, this is what we did in that area to challenge that client's judgment and, and assumptions. But it's really important to stress that it's the audit file that ought to be telling that story. The audit file, almost treat it like an exam paper. You need to show your workings. You need to show that deeper application of scepticism. How did you challenge your client? What evidence did you obtain that either corroborates the client's view? But I think be mindful of, of not ignoring contradictory evidence. Again, whilst I, I'm not going to dive in, into details, but the works audit and the sanction, sanctions issued in regard of, of that work by KPMG was quite critical around where the team had, had almost overlooked some findings, tried to rebadge the audit evidence to tell the story that they, they wanted to tell. And I think do be mindful that we need to be equally open-minded to corroborative evidence, but contradictory evidence, weigh that on balance. And if we need to then go and seek further evidence to break that deadlock, then that is what we need to do. But ultimately, we need to be avoiding the file telling the story of, well, the client told us it was fine and we believe that we trust them. We need to be making sure that our audit work really shows that we've got under the skin of our client's judgments, assumptions that they've applied and we can appropriately corroborate those, show how we've challenged them, but then with the weight of audit evidence, we either ultimately agree with their view with supporting evidence to, to back that up, or if we disagree, we can then maybe have a scenario where, yes, we technically disagree on this, we can quantify it, and we can then appraise that as a misstatement as we're weighing up our, our overall conclusions. That's everything I wanted to touch on today. Hope you found that useful. And as I said, I think really important just to be mindful of the sanctions that, that are issued sort of by the FRC. Whilst clearly on a much bigger scale than the files that I commonly review, I think underlying themes could be pervasive across a number of files for, for all shapes and, and sizes. I said, I hope you find uh, that useful and, and, and hope there's something there you can draw on to enhance the quality um, of your work. Really look forward to either speaking to you on another podcast or a course or seeing you on a file review soon. Do take care. Thank you for listening to the Mercia podcast. For more information on this topic, please visit mercia-group.com.